Well, today is a special day. We have uh, John Ford with us this morning, and uh, uh, he had a great service this morning. Service, no pressure, John, uh, but uh, I believe you'll be repeating it anyway. But uh, it is great to have him here today with us from Camp Barakel, and he'll be uh, presenting this morning's word. So thank you, John, for being here. Thank you. It is good to be here with you, and yeah, nothing like pressure. I mean, the sign out front says dynamic preaching, and now I have to do a good job, <laughs> but thank, I praise the Lord that it is, um, anytime we open this book, it is not about us, it is about somebody else, and uh, so that is my goal and aim for us as well this morning, and uh, it is a pleasure to be with you, and, and uh, I hope you guys are, I hope you're signing up for that snow camp thing, because I'm hoping to be there too, so no, it'll be a good time. Uh, if I can say anything in terms of uh, bringing you greeting from Barakel, it's, you know, hi, and uh, we miss you. We miss you. We have not had campers on the property uh, since last snow camps, and uh, since March 1st, actually, I think, and uh, so that is very strange. Uh, we have been doing lots of work projects uh, and making the place better, and I'm excited about how the facilities look right now. Some of the places... Uh, as especially the Eastside Chapel right now, uh, new windows, new doors, it's been stained. Some of you have seen the new ceiling inside. Just this past week, we've gotten, finally gotten lights, put new lights in, and, and uh, so that place is looking wonderful, and it's just too bad there's nobody to see it. Uh, but we are looking forward to winter and uh, 2021, and uh, Lord willing, having campers and uh, continuing the ministry at Barakel. So... Uh, it is great to be with you here, though, this morning. And uh, maybe you find yourself the same way we have, and I have uh, discovered over this last few months, uh, as a ministry, as well as as a, as a family, and even as a, in smaller groups at times around the property, uh, we have found ourselves in prayer more in the last few months than we probably did prior uh, to March. And that's a little bit of a condemnation, I think a little bit at, at, at one level, like we should have been praying more in the first place, um, but at the same time, a wonderful encouragement and opportunity that God has given to us in this season when you don't know what the rules are going to be tomorrow, you don't know what's going to change tomorrow, you don't know what's going to get canceled tomorrow, uh, and so much is up in the air, and you're just trying to figure out how to navigate day to day, uh, what's happening and what's going on? How do I continue to love Christ and serve him in this, in this day and age? And uh, so with, with that in mind, uh, turn to Romans chapter 1. And uh, I will get there in a minute, but uh, to Romans chapter 1. As we, my aim this morning then is to look at prayer. And uh, if you were like me as a preacher's kid growing up in church, if I heard that the pastor, which often was my dad, but if I heard prayer, there was probably, I hope it wasn't external, but there was at least an internal groan, like, oh no, because I'm just going to walk out of here feeling guilty because uh, I know I don't pray enough uh, or, or whatever. And that is not my aim this morning. I, Though maybe there's room for that in each one of our lives, but that's not my aim this morning. I was ha helped uh, by Graham Goldsworthy uh, in, in preparation and study for this by this paragraph. So let me read this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Unfortunately, the subject of prayer has not always been dealt with well in the Christian literature. Furthermore, most of us will have heard sermons, con convention talks, or Bible studies that seem to imply 
or focus on our defective practices of prayer, including how undisciplined we are, how lazy, and how lacking in resolve. Anybody want to raise their hand to that one? The effect is to make us both feel guilt and discouragement. A terrible legalism seems to surround the subject of prayer. We are cajoled, and I really like that word cajoled. We are cajoled with examples of the great saints like Luther or Spurgeon, who, it is said, regarded two hours a day in prayer as the norm. We will hear sermons on prayer that remind us that Jesus got up very early while it was still dark, and he prayed as a regular habit early in the morning. Well, there's no biblical indication that this was his habit every day to get up real early and do that. But the application is predictably made. If Jesus needed to get up before dawn to pray, how much more do we? (coughs) Excuse me, this is not COVID. I seem to have a frog in my throat at the moment, so I just wanted to let you know about that. The front row does not need to back up if they don't want to. My aim this morning is not a treatise on prayer or effective, this is how to pray better. That's not my aim. I want to look at a model here in chapter one that Paul gives us uh, of Romans to help us think about what is it that takes place while we pray? What are we doing when prayer takes place? What should some of our thoughts be to help encourage my own heart as well as yours to pray more, certainly, and to consider what takes place in prayer Models I think you're familiar with. I don't, I don't know how many of you growing up had a model of some kind, whether that was an airplane or whatever. I grew up in a house full of model trains. Uh, my father was a train collector. It would be very relaxing for him as a pastor to finish a day of counseling or meetings or whatever and disappear downstairs for a little while. Tinkering with model trains would just relax him. And over the course of the years, I think at one point we counted, he had over a thousand engines. That's just engines. So when I say I had a few model trains, I mean, you know, a lot is what I mean. But those models, you know, they're smaller versions of what what was the real thing. And they gave you a glimpse, an understanding, an opportunity to think about the bigger thing. Well, here we have a model from the Apostle Paul of prayer to help us consider to help us think about what it is that takes place when we pray. We all know that we should pray more. That's not news to us. We all know we should be more faithful to pray and quicker to pray and that there's room for ability to pray. None of that is in question. One of the greatest privileges of reading the letters of Paul, Alistair Begg says this, the first century apostle, evangelist, church planter, theologian, is that we are allowed to hear the prayers of Paul. We are able to gain a window into the very center of his being, to see what was on his heart. We're able to look in on him, not as he is up on his feet going about the activities of his day, but as he's down on his knees coming to God in prayer. Because we often tend to think about the Apostle Paul as the one preaching on the street and in the synagogue. That's, that's how we picture, uh, oh, thank you, kind sir. That's how we picture the Apostle Paul. But here we get a glimpse of him on his knees And uh, my prayer is that that will be encouraging to us. May God help us to do that this morning. So uh, Romans chapter 1, if you're there, uh, starting in verse 8 through verse 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing... 
I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let me pray for us again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning. These are your words to us, and I pray that you would come and use your spirit and speak to us. Give us what we need to hear this morning, for what we need is to hear from you. Lord, maybe there's something that needs to be corrected. Maybe there's uh, new information that we need to get. Maybe there's some kind of work that you want to do in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, I pray that you would come and use your word to do that. Help us to hear what you would have us hear this morning. I thank you for these words that have been preserved and kept and now given to us in our own language that we can wonderfully hear and understand and proclaim and gather as a people longing to hear it. And so may you help us in these minutes together this morning in your precious name. Amen. I have here in this section of Romans uh, almost a second introduction uh, an, an informal introduction to the letter here in these verses. And we get, again, a glimpse of a prayer model uh, of what Paul is praying for these Roman believers, for this church in Rome, a church that he has not visited, people that we don't think, we have no knowledge that he has ever visited or, has, or knows them. And several points I want to look at this morning, four of them. Uh, one is uh, that prayer begins with God. Prayer begins with God. Secondly, this is for those of you who are note takers. I see there's on the back of your bulletin a spot to take notes. So prayer begins with God. Secondly, prayers are part of our service to God. Thirdly, pray persistently. Pray persistently. And fourth, pray trusting in God. So those four points this morning is my aim for us to look at and consider in this model of prayer that we see here so that Lord willing, our own hearts would be encouraged to rejoice and celebrate the opportunity, the privilege that God gives us in prayer, and Lord willing to become more faithful in it and uh, learn some things this morning. So number one, prayer begins with God. Prayer begins with God. If we jump all the way back to Genesis, we know the biblical account beginning there shows that while we are still, while still in the ideal situation of creation, God would come into the garden and walk with Adam and Eve. Amazing. Adam and Eve had access to talk with God face to face. Can you imagine and picture that? God suddenly arrives in the garden and they can walk and talk with him. This is a beautiful time of year, and we've had a beautiful weekend to enjoy fall colors and to be outside this weekend. And what a wonderful thing that would have been to be in the garden and rejoice and walk and enjoy face-to-face communication with our Heavenly Father. But as you know, that came to a crashing and horrible end. The ideal situation of creation came under judgment because of the rebellion of man against God and his good order of things. Because of our rebellion, we have no right to access to God. 
and no desire to even approach him, according to Romans 3, Romans 5. And after the fall, scriptures tell us of a cherubim placed at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword to guard the entrance. Yes, certainly to keep us away from the tree, but also in that sense, also guarding us and keeping us from now having that access to God the Father. No presence anymore. And after the flood, God seems to primarily speak through a chosen mediator, a prophet, a priest, a king, a donkey, or whatever means he chooses to use at that point in interacting with his people. There is no focus, though it certainly existed, but there's no focus in the Old Testament. No, not, not very many stories of individual prayer life of the ordinary Israelite. Instead, you have Moses interceding for the people. You have Samuel praying for the people. You have judges coming. You have priests representing and serving in the communication between God and his people. Then Christ comes, and as you turn to the New Testament, and lives a perfect, sinless life, dies an atoning death on the cross for us. And, and what is torn, as he, as he proclaims, it is finished on the cross and passes away, what is torn? What, is, what, is, what, what instantly changes? Well, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple is torn, that very thick. Put a couple phone books. And not, some of you are, are like, what is a phone book? Anyway, several thickness of phone books put together, torn, top to bottom. And you know what was decorated on that curtain? Images of cherubim guarding the entrance to access God the Father, torn. It's a wonderful picture of now, as believers, of those trusting in Christ, of being his children adopted into his family, now having wonderful access to God. What a mighty God we serve. And the biblical picture of prayer is now given within that framework of our fallenness because of our sin and the grace of salvation. For God made the first move toward us, and any move we make is now a response to him. God made the first move, and that's true in our prayer, because he's the one that's made it possible for us to pray. He had to make the first move, because we were incapable. We were enemies. We were aliens dead in our sin. We didn't love God and we didn't desire to follow God or even have a relationship with him. So God made the first move. You're familiar with this. You've had disagreements with people, arguments, whatever. And often all it takes to fix that, to solve that, is somebody to make the first move. Who's going to step up and say, I was wrong. I was sorry. I wasn't listening. I made a mistake. And begin the process of reconciliation, of healing. Well, God didn't do anything wrong. We did. We were the guilty parties. We were the ones that sinned, turned our back away from him. But yet God is the one who made the first move. He sent Christ. He sent Christ by sending his own son to come and live and die so that you and I might live and so that we might have access and have eternal life so that we can pray and be heard. 
It's an amazing God that we serve. So my my aim in giving you all of this, in in a sense, sort of background information, because it's a mouthful that I'm, I'm giving you a lot of doctrine, to be honest. It's a mouthful, but is to remind my heart, to remind yours of why in the world I should pray in the first place. Because God has already done all the work. He has done what I could not do. He has given me access. He's given me the open door to come and speak and talk to him and have communication, to have fellowship, to be heard. God the Father sent Jesus. And then after Jesus left, they, God the Father and Jesus, sent the Spirit. So Jesus leaves and is now where? At the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us, the Scriptures say. So our prayers which, by the way, are being brought by the Spirit, Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit translates our prayers. Have you ever spoken through an interpreter? I have. It's it's a weird experience because you kind of pause all the time, often, and let them catch up sometimes. This is not that kind of interpreter. This is a better interpreter. He doesn't just change your words into a different language. The Spirit here (laughs) intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. Why? Because we do not know how to pray. We don't know what to pray as we ought. He fixes our prayers is what happens. Better than a proofreader. He fixes our grammar, you know, no more, no more commas in the wrong place, no more dangling participles. This is what the Spirit does for our prayers. Two or three of you got that. That's great. <laughs> he takes our prayers and brings them to Christ. And Christ then, interceding for us, delivers them to the Father. Can you see the circle? It's a wonderful picture of God the Father sending Christ, Christ sending the Spirit all for our benefit and his glory. And so the Spirit now takes our prayers to Christ who brings them right back to the Father. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. We have seen the Trinity at work in our prayers. God has done the work. He has made the first move. Now you may be wondering, how did I get all that from these verses? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. So back to, now look look at verse 8 then. First, Paul writes, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. So here right away we see first, he thanks God. Paul thanks God for the faith of the Romans. He doesn't thank the Romans. He thanks God for their faith because it's a gift. It was a gift of God, Ephesians 2. For their faith. So he thanks God because it came from him. It's a gift. Secondly, he understands that apart from the work of Christ, there would be no faith, no thankfulness to appreciate it. It's through, first I thank my God, through Jesus Christ for all of you. It's because of the work of the gospel of what God has done in sending Christ and his faithful and obedient and loving life and death and resurrection on your behalf and mine if we know and trust and love him through Jesus Christ. So Paul's thankfulness 
for the faith of the Romans is delivered to God because that was the source. And the means of how all that could take place is through Jesus Christ. Now, the Spirit of God, which we've already been talking about, is not explicitly mentioned in these verses. But we know in places we've already read, Romans 8 they already read, uh, that He is the indwelling Spirit. He is the one that is with us and helps us in our prayers. The Spirit brings us into union with Jesus. So catch this. The basis of true prayer is the sonship of Jesus, which we share in union with him. The acceptance he has with the Father is the acceptance that we now have. What did Jesus pray in John 11? I know that you hear me, he said to his Father. If the Father always hears the Son, then he always hears those who Here's those who in Christ are sons. Paul's assertion in Galatians 4, because you are sons, God has given us the spirit of his son, the spirit who cries, Abba, Father. We have been made into his sons, adopted as his children. We who were enemies, aliened at enmity with God, have been adopted as his children. And it's as if God is hearing the intercession of his own son when you and I pray. It is a wonderful, glorious picture, and I hope you can see that. I already mentioned, I think, earlier that I'm, I'm, I'm a PK. I'm a preacher's kid. And there are things that are true of preacher's kid, preacher's kids. And here's one that's glorious, by the way. Because in order to see my dad growing up, you had to make an appointment, generally. You had to call ahead. You had to make an appointment to have time with him in the office. That's not true of me. There were two people that did not have to make an appointment to call dad, to walk into dad's office. Now, as I got a little older, I realized there are times not to just barge into the office, but I still had the access. I did not have to call ahead. I did not have to make an appointment. I could walk in and suddenly my dad's attention was on me. Does that make sense? You, you can picture all that, right? Well, that's, that's exactly what we're describing here. We have the attention of God the Father because we have been adopted as his sons because we are in Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? It is glorious truth. And I look forward to a day where we will be face to face and not have to do this via prayer. And I don't know if today is that day, but if not, I want to learn to be more faithful in prayer because God has already done all the work. He has made it possible. He has given me the access. He's given me, so to speak, the open door to walk in and pray anytime I need, anytime I want. It is wonderful. Prayer begins with God, and may our desire to pray grow because of what God has done. Secondly, our prayers are part of our service to God. Prayers are part of our service to God. Verse 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, Paul writes. He knows 
he knows that he has been called to a life of service. As Paul was called and changed from persecutor of the church to church planter, part of that calling is work and service. And Paul has the mindset that all things are to be part of service to his king, to God. In other words, he writes elsewhere, whatever I do, whatever I eat, whatever I drink, all to be done for the glory of God. He understands that even praying, and I don't think about this that often, not in this kind of way, he understands that even praying is about the glory of God. Even how I pray is about the glory of God. For Paul, through the work and practice of prayer, he was able to have his eyes moved from the temporary things in the world around us to the fixed and permanent things of God, to those things that are right and true and honorable and trustworthy. I don't know if you've ever had the experience. I'm sure you have. Probably had the experience of someone catching your eye. Not necessarily somebody you know, but someone catching your eye because of a strange behavior, strange action, strange clothing, strange, strange whatever. There are a lot of strange people in the world. Everybody want to say it. And sometimes, sometimes that, and of which I am foremost, but sometimes that person catches our eye and we find ourselves just watching them for a minute. And have you people watchers? I like to watch people. But you find yourself and you're just kind of watching them. And suddenly though, they turn and look at you and you realize, oh, I've been staring. And now you're embarrassed. You look down or, or you do the <laughs> look. I think prayer does a little bit of that for us because we find ourselves, I find myself often caught up with looking at the things that grab my attention in the world around me. And I'm not talking about just sinful things, just things that are going on in life. I can, I can get overly caught up in and focused on. Maybe, maybe you're that way, that way with issues related to COVID-19. Or I hear there's election coming. Rumor has it. Or whatever it is, whether it's in your personal life, your family life, the life of the ministry of the church. There's lots of things going on. And it is very easy for you and for, and for me to have my eyes fixed on those issues and those things in ways that aren't really helpful or healthy for me. And praying and taking those things to God the Father is like that, oh, I've been staring at that way too much and too long. And God helps move our eyes. That's why the scriptures tell us to, right, to fix our eyes on not what's going on, not the newspaper, not the world, not on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down where? At the right hand of the throne of God. And as our eyes move, our minds can become more clear and focused, and the affections of our heart are changed. Here is Paul. Here's the example. Here is Paul, once a leader in the discovering and closing of churches, of punishing and killing of Christians, now praying and writing a letter to these believers and to a church he doesn't know, hasn't met, and he's thankful for them, and eager to get with them, to encourage them and have them encourage him. It's a wonderful change that we see here 
in Paul, in this model of some of Paul's heart in prayer that we see in these verses. One, one application here for us as we think about verse 8 is how much would our churches be transformed if each of us made it a practice to thank God for others and then tell others what it is about them that we thanked God for. I've done that with some of our summer staff at Barakel in the summer at different times. Put somebody, put, a couple, put somebody together with somebody else who they don't spend much time together with and have them pray for each other and then have them actually speak to each other what are you thankful to God for about them? And it is a wonderful, wonderful exercise. Encouraging, helpful. What a, what a glorious thing that could be in the body of a believers in a church or in a family that we would not only pray for one another and thank the Lord for one another, but then we would speak to one another those things that we see in one another that we thank God for. Oh, may God help us to be more that way, that Paul is right here. Our prayers are to be part of our service to God. Thirdly, and I think this one is pretty obvious in the text, we are to pray persistently. So back to verse 9, and I know you're thinking, we're only on verse 9. What time are we going to get done today? Verse 9, that without ceasing, Paul writes, I mention you always in my prayers. I think it's pretty clear here. If you know this section, if you know Romans, if you know Paul, if you know the book of Acts, he really, really, really wants to get to Rome. And he tells us why. He longs to see them, verse 11, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you and that Paul would also be encouraged by being with them. And he says it again in verse 15, he's eager to preach to them. He also will bring that back in chapter 15 of this letter, that he's eager to get to them in Rome. And here's where the example of Paul is so helpful because we know of his life from the account of it in Acts and we know that he is a pioneer missionary taking the gospel to Jesus to the places that had not previously been known. In doing this, he covered much of the Roman world. His labor stretched from Syria to Rome. He crossed deserts and traversed mountain passes. He traveled by foot and by sea. He was frequently beaten, once stoned, often imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. Everywhere, Paul established churches. And after he established them, he constantly kept in touch with the believers, helping them work through their problems. In one place, he speaks of the daily pressure of his concern for them. No harried pastor has ever been more pressed for time than Paul was. Yet, and no busy executive has ever carried a bigger burden of responsibility than Paul did. But Paul was a model of strong and consistent prayer ministry. In our text, he says that he is remembered, he remembered the church at Rome. Only one of the many churches of a growing Christian movement that Paul is responsible for in some way. And he wasn't even responsible for the church in Rome. But we have, we have more than half of our New Testament because of Paul's faithfulness to stay attached and to care for these churches. And this one he had not even visited, though he hoped to. And what does he say about it? He remembers them constantly, at all times, 
in his prayer. And I don't think Paul is exaggerating here just to try to encourage him a little bit. I don't think he was. I think he really did pray all the time for this church in Rome and for these believers. See, prayer is not inconsistent with hard work, with fervent service. We say this at camp a lot. Pray and work. They go hand to hand. Robert Haldane said, prayer and labor ought to go together. To pray without laboring is to mock God. And to labor without prayer is to rob God of his glory. And until these are conjoined, the gospel will not be extensively successful. Persistently pray or pray persistently. I don't care which order you put it in. It's not to take the place of work, but we are to persistently pray. George Mueller, maybe you've heard of him, the great Victorian Christian and social reformer, tells of a story uh, of his persistent prayer in his diary. In November of 1844, he began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or in the sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might have been. That is an amazing statement just right there. To write that in his own journal. Because I could write that to somebody else, but I would be lying if I said I was that faithful to pray for a particular thing. And he writes five individuals every day, prayed for them. 18 months elapsed before the first of five was converted. I thanked God and continued to pray. Five years elapsed and the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. Six years passed. Oh, I got my order mixed up here. But six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. 36 years later, every day, every day, he wrote that the other two, sons of some of his friends, were still not converted. He wrote, but, and I love this, but I hope in God. I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he began to pray daily, without interruption, for these two men, they were finally converted. But that was after George Mueller had already died. Persistently pray. We see Paul here Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. We often think about closed doors, and Paul here experienced some of this closed doors. So he writes to them, I do not, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So the Lord had other plans for Paul and wanted him to serve in other ways. So God had closed that door up to this point for Paul to go to Rome. But Paul still prayed persistently. And I think from what I can learn as I study the New Testament and I look at the person of, of Paul, I don't think he was the kind that, that saw a closed door and went, huh, 
and then went a different direction. That's not the Apostle Paul I see. I think the Apostle Paul I see would go up and see that closed door and would walk up and push on it a little and probably, you know, check the handle. Is this really locked? And probably with more than one hand, shaking the door and see, is this really closed to me? I think that's the picture that we have of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) He persistently prayed. I watched this summer. We had lots of young people come. And uh, one of the things we did a lot of this summer was split wood. And I would watch these 18, 19-year-old guys who, who, yeah, they're tougher and stronger than me. I'm not going to tell them that, but they are. And uh, they're swinging malls, you know, trying to... And every once in a while, they'd come upon a stump or a piece of wood that just did not want to split. And what are they supposed to do in that? They're just supposed to hitch up their pants and just keep swinging. Maybe turn it a little, come in a different direction, and keep swinging. We are to persistently pray. God calls us to do that. He encourages us to do that. Lastly, we are to pray trusting in God. And I'm encouraged by what we read of Paul's experience in prayer and plans. Because as I already read, and maybe you noticed it as well as we read it, that uh, Paul was prevented from doing something. And then back in verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Again, Graham Goldworthy, who I quoted earlier, helps us again saying this, authentic prayer is an expression of gospel-based faith. The gospel reveals God's will for us. When we pray, we are asking God to bring us and others to the goal that he has revealed to us. God has only revealed to us the big picture of our salvation, not the details of how he's bringing it and us to that goal. As we pray for the means to the end, that is things like safety, food, material needs, healing, gospel proclamation, etc., we must be prepared for God's gracious no while we trust him for the best. Remember, we've already reached the ultimate goal of our union with the risen and glorified Christ. We've already been made children, and we have a wonderful promised and guaranteed future of a hope and a home and presence eternally face-to-face. But it is not faith to demand something that God has not revealed as his will for us. And it must also be said that it is not a lack of faith if, in praying for specifics not clearly revealed by God, we use the qualification, if it is your will. And maybe we do more of that today than we used to. Paul here in this model seems to understand that we should pray all things according to God's will, trusting in him, just as Jesus did in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. As he taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, whose ways are higher than ours, knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the end from the beginning and has all things under his gracious and loving control and working all things for his glory. Amen? Or do I need to repeat that? He knows us better than we know ourselves. You didn't respond, so I'm going to repeat it. Knows the end from the beginning and has all things under his gracious and loving control and working for his glory. Sometimes what you and I ask is not 
what's best for us, even though we may think it is. And therefore, we receive a no answer. But we still want to continue to trust God in our prayers, as Paul does. May we become prayers like Paul. He was confident, he was committed, he was humble and bold and compassionate. He clearly enjoyed prayer and was excited about it. He expected his father in heaven to hear what he said because he's his father and to act in other people's lives accordingly. He prayed and then was watchful in it with thanksgiving, ready to see how God would be pleased to answer his prayers. Prayer begins with God. So let us rejoice today at God's speaking and revealing work, the atoning work of Christ, and our access to God the Father that he has graciously given to us. And so may, may we pray. It should be an act of service. And so may we respond with prayer and see it as part of our calling as believers and as children to interact with our dad, just as we would as a young kid bugging our dad with questions. Any of you have a child at that stage right now? Question for everything? You remember those stages? <laughs> May we persistently pray, resolved to pray persistently and not give up, rattle the door a little bit, and pray. And trust in God, relishing our great God and his love for us, responding in trust to our loving, sovereign God. May we pray as the Apostle Paul prays for these Roman believers. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we need your help in this. We are sinful, selfish creatures. And in spite of that, you have graciously come and love and care for us and call us to be with you and your own. And so help us in these days as we wait for that final day, help us to rejoice and talk to you as our loving Heavenly Father, knowing you have granted us access, you listen and care and have all things under your control. So where else would we go? I thank you for the opportunity for us to be reminded of these truths this morning and help us, help us to, I pray that your, our affections and desire for you is increased. May that have the effect of us praying more, we pray in your precious name, amen.